Welcome to The Flywheel. Welcome back to The Flywheel Podcast. Today's guest is Packy McCormick, author of the incredibly popular newsletter, Not Boring. In our conversation, we talk about how Packy has grown Not Boring from 1,000 to over 32,000 subscribers in less than a year, and the flywheel he's established between his newsletter articles and his angel investing syndicate. In addition to this conversation, I've published a piece on the Flywheel newsletter about the creator economy in general and how writer investors like Packy fit in. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Packy McCormick. Packy McCormick, thanks for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, so on the very small chance that there's a Flywheel reader who's not familiar with either you or Not Boring or both, uh, I would love to start with uh, just having you introduce yourself and what you're up to these days. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I have been writing the Not Boring newsletter for about a year now. I was writing kind of a, a smaller kind of links type newsletter for a year before that, just on the side, but really been focusing on this since kind of the beginning of the pandemic. Not Boring is a newsletter that writes about big companies, small companies, uh, trends that are going on kind of at the intersection of tech, finance, business, strategy. I've written, written about public companies and had a lot of fun with that. And then very, very early stage companies. And as part of the early stage piece of it, I'm also running a syndicate on the side of Not Boring, which has become an increasing focus because it's been so much fun to get to tell those stories and then have the audience invest in those companies together. Awesome. If I have the Packy McCormick history down, right, I think you started your career as an investment banker. Is that correct? Yeah. So I started my career as a fake investment banker. I, I joined uh, Bank of America on the energy trading desk in 2008, which was a wild, wild year to join an energy trading desk. I think the, the price of oil peaked in the middle of the summer. We went away for the 4th of July holiday. It dipped. I went back to school for my senior year. Bank of America and Merrill merged. I came back uh, and how about half the trading desk got kicked into public finance, which is muni bonds. So did that at Bank of America, which was still fun, same pay, same title, better hours. Um, but knew that was not going to be for me. So got out of there. I uh, was about to put, go to business school and then joined a startup called Breather where I worked for six years. I was uh, an intern at Bear Stearns in the summer of 08. So there you go. Very familiar story. And it's interesting to see how uh, those of us from this generation who started off in finance end up doing very different things down the road. <laughs> I also I also won a Lehman Brothers pitch competition in like the very beginning of uh, the school year that year. And like part of it was, you know, an interview to, to go work at, at Lehman Brothers after that. And things fell apart very quickly. Wow. Most worthless prize of all time. That's great. Yep. Um, so, okay. So you go to work for this startup and worked there for six years. Walk me through the last couple of years of your career. Like how did you wind up starting not boring and, um, you know, or even was that sort of the intention to sort of pivot this as a career or, you know, kind of a happy accident or something else? Very happy accident. So had been a breather for, you know, five or so years, our CEO left. I was in the office of the CEO for a little while with a couple other guys running the company. It was a ton of fun, learned a lot. It felt like, you know, that that's kind of what I wanted to do, run my own thing. And I think before you kind of get to that point, every level above you, you're like, oh man, I'm, I, I can do this job, but like, I can't do that next level of job. Like there's some magic that goes on in an exec meeting, or there's some magic that the CEO knows because he talks to the investors, or there's some magic that the investors know. And each level going up, kind of realized that there's not some magic at the next level. Uh, so, you know, that was, I think, the, the best part of that experience for me. We brought in a professional CEO. He brought in uh, 
professionalized kind of exec team. And so as I started sitting in on a, the first few of those meetings, I was like, you know what? I think it's probably time for me to, to think about leaving. So I tried to leave Breather for a few times uh, throughout 2019, was able to leave at the end of 2019 and was actually setting out to build something else called Not Boring Club, which is where I got the name in the first place, which is going to be essentially Soho House meets college extracurriculars. And even saying it kind of post talk now, I realized that that would have been a lot of fun as a product and a really slog as a business. And I wrote a bunch about why I thought it could be a venture scale business and was able, I think like there's something about people who write and think a lot where you can kind of write yourself into any argument for anything. And so I could do that and I justified it to myself and, and convinced myself that it was going to work. And then the pandemic came right after I'd kind of started letting members in, thankfully before I had signed a lease or anything like that. Uh, and so started moving things virtual, realized I didn't want to be a virtual community manager. Uh, so didn't do that um, and decided to shut it down for a little while at least and had this newsletter on the side that was really, you know, all the only asset that I had at that point, unless I wanted to go find a real job. Um, and so I, I had about 400 subscribers at that point. And was like, I'm just going to go for this and start writing essays. I'm going to rename it Not Boring. I like that name for the club or for this and just kind of go for it and see what happens. And so since then, have been able to fortunately grow it from like 400 people to I think we're at 32,000 subscribers now. Um, and it's just been a wild ride. But I think, you know, the biggest thing has been just writing something every week and not being afraid to look like an idiot the whole time. Yeah. So you sort of gloss over it. You say, oh, 400 to 32,000. And I think maybe if you're not familiar with the story, you might not have a sense of the, the, the insanity of that trajectory and how fast that that has happened. I was just looking through some old tweets and I think you posted a thread like in May, 2000, uh, 2020, you had a thousand subscribers. You were giving some, you know, here's how to get started as a newsletter writer, because I'm still not so big that, you know, maybe you can learn something from me still. Um, that, you know, that that's the end of May, 2020. That is what, seven, eight months ago. Yeah. So from a thousand to 32,000 in like seven months, like that's nuts. Um, and as someone who has my own newsletter, whose growth has not looked like that at all, um, I, I would love to hear you, first of all, just talk about like, what does that feel like, like emotionally? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it feels, you know, I think it, had you just told me at that point, you'd be at 32,000, like, don't worry about it. It's going to be amazing. I'd be so excited. Now I'm kind of like, I don't know, you, you compare yourself to local things more than global things. And so I'm like, cool, I have 32,000 now, but I had 31,700 last week. So like, why did my growth slow down this week? Or, you know, like there's always something or like, shoot, now I have 32,000 subscribers. This week better be really good. And like, so I, the pressure just kind of continues to build. And so there haven't been, there hasn't been very much like take a break and don't worry about it uh, moments for me. But I think, you know, like you pointed out that uh, luckily I was able to, to be small for a while, right? So it's not like I started at a thousand then and it was like month one and then it grew to 32,000. I had a year of growing from zero to 400 or so people before I got to a thousand. And so there was that whole slow thing there, but I actually think building up that base and having like showing people how I was thinking about growth, even while there was no growth, I think just like kind of built up uh, a little bit of trust and, and you know, I, I could talk about the journey in a way that it felt cool for even just readers when I started growing because we were kind of in this together and they saw that, you know, I was this guy who had a good career and everything. And now I'm writing a free newsletter that has 400 people and that's my job. Uh, so I think it was like kind of fun to start there. And then that just amplifies, I think the consistency and just having that feeling of all being in it together, I think just amplifies the things that happened on the way up because people are like kind of psyched that they're part of this thing that feels like it's growing a little bit. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I, I really like what you said about sort of like no matter where you are, you always 
look into your immediate surroundings and compare yourself to whoever your benchmarks are um, at the time. And that changes all the time too. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that, that feeling, no matter how successful or not success, successful they've been lately. Um, I mean, that's that, like that the biggest change. cause. Yeah. yeah. That's the biggest cause. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if I could meditate for an hour a day, I'd maybe get better at that and, and appreciate it more, but certainly I think that's, that's a pretty common sentiment. What, what are your kind of motivations or goals right now? Like what, what are you trying to do with this thing in general? Yeah, it feels really good to not have an answer to that question. So like I said, I worked in banking for four years. I worked at Breather for six years. I've had this like very, you know, I'm a pretty loyal employee when, when I'm in a job. And so it feels really nice to not have a plan or goals for this. Like, you know, I, I had goals that to get to a thousand, to get to 5,000, to get to 10,000, to get to 25,000. And that's, that made last year so much fun. And it was, it was really great to be able to kind of work towards that. Now, frankly, I you know had a kid four months ago. My goal is to to keep trying to write better things despite having less time, and to grow the investing side of of not boring and really like try to take the lessons from writing about big companies and apply it to the small ones, and take the lessons from kind of what I'm seeing in the early stage and apply it to bigger ones. Gotcha. So so maybe goals is the wrong the wrong term, but in terms of motivation, it sounds like you you do have a lot of things that are motivating you, but they're more around the ability to not set goals and the ability to do whatever the hell you want and write whatever the hell you want. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, the fact that I can do this and make a living doing this and it, it can uh, subsidize a, an angel investing kind of passion, all of that is like, you know, I, I couldn't ask for any more. So if it gets bigger and, and there's more there, then that's awesome. But right now this is kind of the dream. Amazing, I love that. Um, cool, so let's talk a little bit about, a little bit more in detail about not boring. Uh, let's start with, you know, how do you pick what to write about? Your guess is as good as mine, frankly, like some, this week I wrote about Robin hood and th that one was, was one where I was like, man, everybody's written about Robin hood, but this is like, this is my turf. Like this is finance. I've been talking about Robin hood for a while and, and how I think something like this is going to happen. Like I have to write about this one. So normally a piece takes like 40, 50 hours to write. This one took, I don't know, six hours to eight hours to write because I just had it like in me. I think that's probably what Bern Hobart feels like when he writes where he just has the world's <laughs> knowledge stored in his head. And so he just has to sit at the keyboard and write it out. Uh, so that was, that was fun. But normally the process is, you know, either there's a company that I've been wanting to look into for a while. Uh, and so I'll start digging in and seeing if there's an angle there. And then if there is, then just go really, really deep. Uh, and so the process looks like pulling for a public company, pulling investor presentations, getting my hands on all of the most recent and kind of earliest podcasts and videos of the founders and the people involved in running the company, try to get my hands on some research reports to understand what the general narrative is, use a ton of Twitter and both kind of thinking about what the ideas are gonna be, but then also digging in and seeing what people are saying about the companies on Twitter, uh, work with Pulsar platform to, to figure out if there's like some interesting trends that are going on um, that, that kind of tie into the story and just see if there's something interesting there that hasn't been said. Cause I write about a lot of companies that are very well covered. And so I need to figure out what the angle is gonna be and then just absolutely immerse myself Every week, I think, you know, I'm gonna make an outline of this thing this time, and it's gonna make it so much easier to write. And I have an outline doc, I think, for every piece that I've written. And most of them have like a few links in them, and that's it, because I start writing, and then that's kind of how I figure out what the angle is gonna be. Interesting, so you just go pen to paper, pen to digital paper, and just sort through the mess for 40 to 50 hours or so. Yep, that's, that's the journey. 
Wow. That's, that's crazy. So, so what, how would you describe what you're trying to accomplish with the pieces? I know, uh, you know, granted each piece might be a little bit different, but I think one thing that's really unique about your writing compared to a lot of other kind of popular business writing is that these are very long essays. I mean, I don't know if 7,000 words ish per essay. I don't know if you have a you know r- rough estimate. Um, I, just for context, like the flywheel pieces are somewhere between 2,500 and 3,500 pe- uh, words a piece. And mostly that's because I'm not doing this full time yet. And so I can't spend 50 hours on a piece at all. Um, and so, so, you know, you're asking your readers to do quite a bit of work, right. To go along with you on this journey. And yeah, um, would love to hear you talk about sort of what you're trying to actually achieve with each of these pieces. Ah. I mean, I wish I had better answers for a lot of these questions. I mean, if I had 10 more hours, I think my pieces would be 3,500 words potentially, right? Like I, I think it's every every morning before I hit send, I'm still editing, I'm still trying to cut for length. And I'm kind of like, all right, we're, this is kind of as short as it's gonna be. And so I've cut it down from 9,000 to 7,000 words. Let's, let's send it out. So they're not intentionally that long. And actually for the longest time, you know, I, when I was writing per my last email and would sometimes write essays, it'd be maybe like 2000 words or, you know, I would almost hit the bottom of Substack, And I thought that was really long. And I actually got feedback from people that like, wow, these are really, really long. And then when I started writing essays, I tried to keep them within the Substack bounds, which is, you know, 3000 ish words. If you don't have too many tweets or, or images in there, try to keep it there. And then just like realized at one point, uh, Lenny Ruchiski told me that you can add a button at the bottom that just like sends people to the site online and they can continue reading. And so that governor off, I just kept going because <laughs> even when I went from 2000 to 3000, it seemed like people liked the pieces a little bit more. And then I'd go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. I think there's like a meta point more generally here that like, I don't think short or long is necessarily good. I think like novelty ends up being pretty good sometimes. And so the fact that a lot of people write, you know, concise things, and maybe this is an excuse I'm telling myself and maybe it'd be more popular for the shorter, but because a lot of people write concise things and these like, big meandering deep dives that you kind of need to invest in is a, a kind of different and interesting type of format. And to make up for it, I put a lot of pictures in there. I curse, I make you know the language a little bit more fun. And so I, I don't know, in terms of what I'm trying to get at it, I want people to learn about these businesses and I, and I want them to do it in a way where they're actually enjoying it and having fun the whole time and where anybody who's reading it and like the audience is CEOs of big companies and people who run like big funds and it's like, some people sign up and I'm like, oh man, the pressure is on. Like, I can't believe that person has signed up for, for the newsletter. Down to like, you know, my mom and her friends or, you know, my mom has an MBA, but but people who aren't familiar with the concepts, I want them to, to walk away feeling like they've learned some concept or something or some way that businesses work and kind of want to demystify the whole thing as well. Cause like there's a ton of complexity and thinking about businesses generally, like shouldn't be this thing that only the select few group of people can do because there's a few things that kind of matter for every business. And there's, you know, a few moats that you can build and there's a few line items on, on the balance sheet that matter. And there's like all these things that I want to, to demystify through the writing that people are going to have fun while they're reading these, these stories even better. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, it's funny just because I think I describe what I'm trying to do with the flywheel in a lot of similar terms, which is um, more or less an accident, maybe not completely an accident. Um, I, and also just to, to your point on concise versus not concise, like just cause something's 3000 words definitely does not mean it's concise. And just cause something is 7,000 words doesn't mean it is not concise. So I think uh, th- there's sort of, you know, spectrums of quality, no matter how long a piece is for sure. Totally. You write on so many different topics every you know week or twice a week on, on very different things. And uh, how do you keep tabs on sort of like what's working and what's not working? 
maybe you don't care, but uh, you know, what are the sort of sources of feedback that you care about the most? Yeah, I try not to care um, because I- It's hard. It's hard, but I, I'm pretty active about not soliciting feedback most of the time. And I can kind of get a general sentiment, but I did a survey when I was going out to, to start getting advertisers and sponsors into Not Boring. And I asked people what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it for just kind of broad, but, but as specific as possible feedback. Um, and I realized for the couple of weeks after that, that I was definitely writing differently and thinking about the pieces that I was choosing differently. And that's like great. And there's obviously a reason to, to that, that companies all over the world solicit and love user feedback. And I do too. And people email after every post and say, I like this, I didn't like that. And, and those things are great. But what I don't want to do is say like, hey, you know what? I like doing this other thing more, but people seem to like if I do, you know, more research report type things on companies. So I guess I have to do that. Like I have all of the uncertainty that comes with professionally writing a free newsletter that is, you know, ad supported. And so if I'm going to have all of that uncertainty anyway and not get healthcare and all of that, I better be doing something that I really enjoy doing. And so, and, and I also think that comes across in the writing as well. So I really try to just write things that I think are really interesting and write them in a way that I think people are going to find interesting and hope that that, that resonates, but try not to let feedback dictate where I'm going too much. That said, I do need to start taking, do need to start getting a little bit more feedback for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do you write more or less on your own or do you have a, you know, their team or sort of some, some trusted folks that kind of help you through the process? No, I mean, my brother uh, and my wife edit my pieces, um, but, and then they're saints because they've been doing it for pretty much the, the whole time now, but my wife reads it as my kind of like, is this interesting or not editor? And then my brother will rip it apart and tell me that I didn't have any thesis in the whole piece and I didn't rethink <laughs> the whole thing. And so he's my like harsher editor, but my, my wife is a pretty good judge where like I, I wrote a piece on APIs, which as of Sunday afternoon, I was like, I don't know, should I like not send this tomorrow? I think this is garbage. Like I, I, who am I to go talk about the subject that I've never, you know, I've never worked with an API before. Why, why am I going to write about this? And I gave it to my wife and I was like, can you just like tell me what I need to like cut or change or something to make this thing better? And she read it and she was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I love this one. I think people are really going to like this. I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, I don't, all right, whatever. I'll edit myself then if you aren't going to give me any harsh feedback. And I sent it and it's the first piece that I've had that broke a hundred thousand views, got incredible feedback on it. Like all this thing. So I don't know. And so having my wife as like the kind of like semi outsider who can read and kind of be the, the voice of the people is really, really helpful, even though she's not making a lot of specific in the weeds comments. I love that. Yeah. Here's a shout out to all the significant others of all of us free newsletter writers. My girlfriend plays basically the same role um, in a lot of ways, and it's unbelievably valuable. Totally. Um, so I mean this in the nicest possible way, but one thing that strikes me with what you're doing is that you don't do, you don't like seem to waste a lot of time with a bunch of, bunch of fancy stuff. Like, you're just like publishing on Substack. You're not like overthinking what platform you should be on. You're not, you know, you see so many other people doing all these like things to have a nicer website or all this stuff, right? And, and I remember, I mean, we've talked a few times throughout my journey, at least on the flywheel. And uh, some of the advice that you've given me that has really resonated with me is that like, and I see this with so many writers just getting started is that they just overthink this stuff so much. And they spend so much time on the landing page and the e whatever, all this bullshit at the end of the day, that's not what really matters. And so, you know, is that uh, sort of like a very deliberate thing that you're focusing on just quality of writing, quality of writing, quality of writing and nothing else? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think ideally that's exactly what I'd be doing is focusing on the quality of the writing and nothing else. I think one of the complicating factors is that writing is this thing that is best if you go into the hole and just research and do it. And I'll, I'll count even Twitter as like part of the, the research process. But if you just kind of focus on the writing, that's the best case scenario. Adding the, the syndicate piece to it while there's benefits in a lot of different ways and while it works together really nicely is also just the exact opposite structure where it's super meetings focused and you're context switching all of the time. And so those things are, I'd say like the thing that, that make me focus maybe a little bit less on the writing, but then I get ideas for the writing just by talking to people who are building early stage stuff. But ideally, yeah, I mean, I think the, the only thing that matters is the quality of the content um, for particularly a one person thing and a one brand thing. So like a couple of recent examples would be every launching their own site. When you have seven different people across different categories and you need to organize that content in, in a clean way, then Substack is not the spot for that because you can't really do much categorization. For Mario, he has like three, Mario Gabriel, who writes you know the S1 Club and the Generalist and all of that, because he has different brands that do different things, I think it makes a ton of sense for him to go move off of Substack and, and do something kind of clean and, and specialized. For me, I write not boring. I mean, I think I will probably have to move off Substack at some point because I don't want to go paid and I do want to segment the audience a little bit, just in terms of like, you know, maybe at some point people don't want to get uh, an investment memo every week or they just want to get the Mondays, they just want to get the investment memos and I can't do that on Substack. Um, and so probably go to something like a convert kit at some point. But I don't know, a lot of that is also just a function of always rushing to get the next piece out. And so I have on my, in a notion doc or Rome or something somewhere, like here's kind of what I'm gonna, I, I need to do this year, not like a long-term roadmap, but like build a website and start like categorizing the back catalog and build a page for the investments and those types of things that just, I have not had time to do. And I think yeah. adding someone else into the process and maybe I should get a team at some point, but at, at least for a while that takes more time. And this is just such a momentum driven thing that I feel like, if I take a few weeks to go rebuild, I'm sure that's just in my head, but it just feels like it slows momentum. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Another example of something that I think a lot of writers kind of maybe overly focus on, or maybe it's debatable, but is, is sort of the growth stuff, right? And the the how do I drive more traffic and more subscribers and blah, blah, blah. And um, I think, I know in your case, you used to do these like long tweet threads when you would publish a piece and now you're just like throwing them up there on Twitter and letting the world do its thing. Um, is, I, I think that's kind of a similar story, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, so certainly I had, you know, the list of a hundred growth things that I wanted to do and tried a few of them. And I think in the beginning in particular, you have to do something so that like you need the kindling so that it, something can, can catch or else it just doesn't catch. But once you get an audience of a certain size and you have the right type of people in it and all that, then the most important thing is the quality because it matters so much more if somebody who people respect shares what I write than if I share again for the millionth time something that I've written. And so I think in the beginning, certainly like you want to get to that critical mass while maintaining kind of the the quality. I think it is kind of like a marketplace business in some sense where you should find, I think Sarah Tavel said it on, on 20 Minute VC, like you find that white hot center and actually going for broad GMV is the biggest mistake that you can possibly go for. Like just really, really serve that like core audience of yours really, really well. And then it'll grow from there. I think there's definitely a rush in a lot of cases to just grow the audience as big as humanly possible. And then you have this like really kind of diffuse thing where you have people who are interested in all sorts of different things and don't really care about what you're writing. And that doesn't help. That makes your open rates 
bad and makes you feel bad when nobody opens it and all of that. So get to a thousand or so people. And, and then it's really about making sure that it's good enough that those people want to share. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Packy McCormick flywheel, which I know you are uh, reluctant to, to even consider that term, but, uh, but we'll go with it anyway. Um, and so I think one thing that's interesting, you know, anyone who watches sort of the, this generation of Substack writers who are taking off like, you know, like yourself and, and a few others um, is there's an interesting thing where the writer at some point decides to start building things around the newsletter. Right. And so they, they launch uh, a lot of people have launched communities, right? Like Lenny has a community and he, I think he also just did a course, right? So courses and community seems to be a very popular uh, route for a lot of people. Uh, there probably are others, other examples that I'm just not thinking of right now. Um, but I think your, your case is a little bit different. You're doing, you're really focused on this investing syndicate. Um, and I think it's a really interesting, there's a really interesting connection between the writing and the, the investing. And so would love to just hear kind of how you came up with the idea to do this, how, how this sort of started um, and how you see the relationship between the investing side and the writing side. Yeah. So at this point in the conversation, this might not surprise you anymore, but this also was not intentional. Um, so I, I had a friend who I met a bunch of years back, uh, Fed Novikov, who I met when he and his brother were building robots that built rooms. So they like theoretically, and they weren't commercialized yet, but theoretically you had these little robots that could build walls that were electrified and all of these things in 30 minutes. And so because I worked at a commercial real estate company where we needed different size rooms at different points, we met. Fast forward five years, I wrote a piece called Natively Integrated Companies on companies that are kind of a little bit more full stack. There's other names for this thing, like the full stack company or the fat startup or all of those types of things, but where you're willing to kind of take on more of the capital risk and uh, and use software on like the customer facing thing. So it's not like you're just this like super heavy atoms based company, but you are, uh, you, you do use software, but you're kind of some combination of the two. Fed goes and starts another company after Airbnb called Apt. We're talking and he's like, this is kind of a natively integrated company. And like, that's the, the kind of one of the framings that we've been using. We're having a hard time telling real estate investor or telling, telling venture investors why this isn't a real estate play and why they shouldn't think about this the same way they would think about a real estate company. We're having a hard time doing that in a pitch deck into the 30 minute pitch. Would you write something up on, on apt? And I was investing in the company, so I was more than happy to. And we decided to just do it as kind of an investment memo. Like, here's how I would think about investing in Apt. Sent the the deal flow to somebody else. The round filled up, and Fed was like, "Dude, you should just do this yourself." And so, you know, Angelus makes it really easy to start a syndicate. And so we've done that, and I think are on about to do deal number eight through the syndicate. And we started, I think, in July. So it's moving nicely. And I think it works pretty well as I'm sure we'll dive into, but works pretty well with, with everything else that, that happens on the newsletter. Yeah. So let's talk about how it works. So you, you publish your newsletter twice a week, right? Mondays and Thursdays. And I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have Mondays sort of set aside for like these deep dive essays on not companies you're investing in, you know, yep. but a, but a wide ranging uh, assortment of topics. And then Thursdays are more or less reserved for these sort of investment memos or, or other things like that. Right. Exactly. So Mondays will be public companies and then a broader kind of trend thing, or if there's something like Robinhood, which isn't public, but everybody is thinking about, then that's a big kind of Monday piece. And then Thursdays I'll do investment memos, the occasional guest post, and then sponsored deep dives, which has been this really fascinating thing where companies pay me to essentially write the investment memo on the company. Um, and that was a risky move that has worked out really well, I think, because I've been pretty honest about the fact that I want to make a living out of this and 
people know how I think. And so they can see that I'm not, you know, being really nice to a company when I'm mean to everybody else, all of that. But yeah, then there's the investment memo, which hopefully once or twice a month, I'm writing an investment memo on a company. And then for accredited investors who read the newsletter, I have a syndicate on AngelList that they can go join and then see more. They can see the deck. They can decide to invest or not invest in each one of the deals. Gotcha. So the investment memos themselves are essentially the, like you said, the, the, the pitches as to like sort of why should you invest in this company or why, what is the case for this company? Um, people read it, presumably get excited about it and you give them a way to invest in it as well. Just to recap that. Um, exactly right. So to what extent this, might, I don't know if, you know, sensing a theme, but I, you know, I, I have a feeling the answer will be uh, that it's not planned at all, but to what extent would you say the content that you're writing more or less is there to sort of source investments for the syndicate versus the other way around where like the syndicate exists to source really great content? This is a tough one because I mean, it's all about writing the things that interest me every week and, and to assume that I'm doing one or the other would give me, I think a little bit more credit on having planned things out. But I think to me, writing the kind of content, the Monday pieces that have been there the whole time, I think is one way to just show LPs, the people who invest in the syndicate, the way that I think. And so, you know, if they think that I'm an idiot when they read my Monday pieces, then they probably shouldn't invest with me. If they're like, oh, you know what? I can see his thought process and I understand how he thinks about companies. Then maybe they they trust me enough to come in and at least give a closer look to the deals that I write about on Thursday. Um, and then I'll, you know, write about themes. So I've written about the metaverse before when I was diving into Tencent, for example, and then somebody reached out, uh, who is running a company that I think is fascinating in the space. We've been talking for a while and we're about to open up a syndicate deal in his company because it came from the fact that I was really interested in this angle that Tencent had on building the metaverse. And so there's some kind of, uh, some kind of deal flow that comes from that. And then some of it just comes straight up from writing the investment memos and companies who are raising money or investors who have companies that are raising money or any of that are like, oh, this is actually a really interesting format because you know, not just are you going to write a check and we can get any old angel to write a check and maybe introduce us to one or two leads or something, but you'll help tell our story and then send it out to 30,000 people. Like That's a, a differentiated thing, at least for now, until every other newsletter launches a syndicate. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, uh, cool. So I actually definitely want to ask you about the metaverse a little bit because you've written about it a handful of times. Um, but before we move on from from this this flywheel that we're talking about, do you have a sense from your kind of core audience the the re the, the reception to these two different types of articles? Like, are people who are really into the Monday articles also pretty pumped, even if they're not investing in these sort of uh, startup investment memos, and vice yeah. versa? Yeah, I mean, I was cautious about that and asked for feedback on the first couple, because like I said, it was a total experiment the first time or two. Um, and I was worried and am worried whenever I do the investment memos or the deep dives that people are going to be like, eh, I don't know, stick to the Monday stuff. I think what I've realized like with all of this is that people like the things that they like, and then they ignore the things that they don't like. It's not, you know, maybe I'll get a higher unsubscribe on a certain email or, or, or another, but for the most part, at some point people are just going to choose to ignore something if it's a topic that doesn't interest them. That said, I didn't really shocked actually that the open rates have been pretty much consistent between the Monday and Thursday pieces. A good Monday piece with a topic that a lot of people are talking about will get shared more than a Thursday piece, whether that's an investment memo or a deep dive. But for the most part, open rates are good. Feedback is, is good on each. I think people like seeing this part of the world. Like anybody can write about Facebook and talk about Facebook, but you know, most people aren't thinking about healthcare companies in Africa most of the time and understanding what's broken in healthcare more 
broadly and and how does a simpler system have the ability to fix that and what's going on in terms of you know gdp growth in certain african countries and like these things that people just never ever think about mm-hmm. so i think that part's interesting and then i think there's this other part where again it's another one of those things where it's totally opaque from the outside early stage investing but when you do it, it's just a bunch of people running around and some people have some ideas early on for companies and other people have money and maybe good relationships and those things match. And so I think, again, in the theme of like demystifying a lot of this this stuff, I think Thursdays are really good for, for that. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I think I made my first angelist investment through one of, maybe it was apt, one of your first deals. And that was before I now get like 17 you know, AngelList syndicate opportunities every week. I thought that was going to be a relatively rare uh, opportunity to invest in a cool startup. And it turns out, like you said, everyone's kind of starting a syndicate now. But uh, yeah, I think being able to stand out with content in that uh, ecosystem, I think makes a lot of sense. For sure. Yeah, and that's the other part of the flywheel then where now I'm starting to see deals that I should, I have no business being in, but the founders get, you know, the, the value of the, the mailing list and, and even just the help telling the story. And so that's, I think, where the flywheel kicks in on that side of things is that they see the value. I get to see deal flow that I wouldn't normally get, which means that the audience gets to see deals that they wouldn't normally get access to and round and round because there's a ton of deals floating out there. There's not a ton of great deals floating out there. You know, some some segment of the deals are good and some aren't. And so the more you can get into those great deals, I think the better it is for everybody kind of involved in the flywheel. Right. And I think the piece that would complete the flywheel is that if that process we just described then leads to better Monday pieces somehow. Interesting. Yeah. You know, because, I think, because it, what we're, I think what we're saying is like by writing what you're writing, you can be a better angel investor or syndicate lead than you could be without it. Great. I think we get that. Um, but then the question is without the without the in, or with the investing, you could be a better general business analyst than you would be without it. And I actually think that's, so I'm not, I'm not just trying to complete the flywheel, but I actually think that's true. Like the Robin Hood piece that I wrote on Monday was certainly colored by the fact that we invested in Composer, which was a company in the investing space. And it wasn't, you know, I'm a Composer investor, so I'm going to attack Robin Hood because of Composer. It was more, I understood why a company at the earliest stage would even go in and try to compete in the space that's crowded out by Wealthfront and Robinhood and Betterment and all of these companies. Like what are the holes that are still left and what does Robinhood not do well? And so I already had that background coming into the piece yesterday from researching Composer or you know, to complete the loop on the metaverse piece. So I wrote about Tencent, met this company Crucible, and then as we were talking, decided to write a piece like that was even deeper on kind of Web3 and NFTs and the metaverse and this whole world that without a native guide like I had in, in Ryan, the CEO of Crucible, I would not have been able to get that deep in that world. And so I do think actually that, that it comes back in, and is favorable there. And I think that's probably maybe the number one thing is the number one thing is getting a guide who knows that space a hell of a lot more than I do. And number two would be just thinking about how the big companies that I write about on Monday are vulnerable and like why anybody would start a company right now when Amazon, Facebook, Google, all of those companies exist. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, especially, you know, earlier on the in the conversation, you talked about how you sort of are going by gut feeling when you figure out what to write about, right? And so gut feeling only, it only happens when you are experiencing lots of different things in the world, right? And so totally. when you give yourself access to this whole other world, which is these you know early stage startups, not just what you publicly read about from people raising their series Bs and Cs in the, in the press, um, but from actually talking to founders who are in the earlier stages of it, it completes your understanding of you know the industries that you care about the most. 
gives you the chance to write these much deeper, much richer pieces for, for the Monday pieces. hundred percent. I actually think the biggest weakness probably in the biggest hole that I have is in like the less sexy stuff at the bigger stages. So like how companies think about raising debt and like what the construction of, you know, if, if you're talking about Amazon, like the inner workings of how Amazon works and how different teams fit together and like the politics of how things work. Cause I think, you know, a lot of the early stage stuff is still pretty conceptual strategy stuff. A lot of the outside looking in big company stuff is conceptual strategy stuff. And then there's this whole other piece that's like the guts of what happens inside of a company that would make, you know, a brilliant strategy, something that they could or could not execute because there's, mm-hmm. you know, some asshole in some division who's just like a total blocker and then not letting the thing that should happen happen. And so like, there's so much stuff when you get beneath the surface that's, surface that's, that's less pure that I think would be the next like really fun thing to, to explore. It's interesting. It reminds me of a topic we've both written about, which is the, the Zillow open door thing, which is sort of like a strategic, you know, Zillow being the company that sort of saw this threat and decided to just blow up their existing business and launch a completely um, almost like, uh, cannibalizing, you know, new business inside of its uh, internally. Um, and, and, you know, at least in my piece, the case I was making was like, you can't just do that, right? You have a culture, you have stuff that like legacy uh, systems and culture and compensation and incentives and all of these things that, you know, make it extremely I mean, this is why disruption theory exists in the first place. No one, totally. no one doesn't know that there's this threat coming. It's just more the, the ability to act against it. A hundred percent. Awesome. So, I do want to ask you about the metaverse. Um, Let's do it. What is the metaverse and why are you so captivated by it? Okay. So the metaverse is, you know, the, the simple explanation is if you've read Ready Player One or Snowpiercer or anything, it's this, this digital world sometime in the future that people can live in. Like, I think probably the way that people think about the metaverse is like a virtual reality world. And that's interesting. And I think it makes for good fiction. I think the, the really interesting thing about the metaverse to me is that it's what happens when all of the different systems kind of start talking and that's different online systems, that's online and offline systems. I was actually, and this feeds back into it, just talking to an entrepreneur building kind of a physical bridge, a, a bridge between the physical and digital products. So he's like, look, the metaverse is not going to be just a virtual reality world. It'll be this kind of thread that goes through how we act in the real world and how we are online. Um, but I don't know, to me, the metaverse is when you can kind of walk around in different digital environments with your own identity and skins and like this this whole virtual kind of persona and everything is just smooth. Like right now, if you think about the internet, you go to Amazon and you need to enter your password and your credit card and your everything. Then you hop off and you go to Google and maybe you're using a different email address. And it's just like a bunch of kind of silos across the internet. And I think the metaverse is when both it's more immersive and persistent and uh, kind of collaborative, but it's also just smoother and, and more seamless. Gotcha. And, and, and why do you, why do you think it's so interesting? I mean, obviously there's sort of like the novelty factor, right? Like it, it would be really cool if this thing existed, like that's true. Um, but, but from a business perspective, like why, why is this topic something that you keep coming back to? Yeah. I mean, it takes everything to the past 20 or so years of the internet have done and just puts it on total steroids. So if you take one small piece of it that is just blown up, which is this idea of uh, NFTs that I feel like in the past, like three weeks have totally blown up and NFTs are non-fungible tokens. They're a way to kind of provide digital scarcity and authenticate digital items and make it so that this one digital outfit that I own, I am the only person who owns that thing. And so it has real value. If you take that like and look at, at what 
a digital outfit looks like from a business perspective, like maybe there, you know, you have to hire an artist and you're doing a one-of-one -one type of thing, whatever, but the supply chain is so different in making this thing where it's just, you know, like somebody at a computer makes this thing, then they sell it to either one person or thousands of people. And you have this whole economy that just runs on kind of digital goods, but that now have some sort of scarcity. And it just totally changes up business models, makes margins look completely different, changes who gets kind of access. Like, you know, you could make a lot of money as a graphic designer selling your own things to people directly and, and all of those things. So I think what will happen to business models is totally fascinating. And like even just going direct to consumer versus through retail, and that's still moving atoms about, it was a huge kind of transformation. And so if you think about kind of what that looks like in a virtual world, super fascinating. I also think it's it's a good mirror back on what we actually care about now, even so you're like, I don't know, why would you spend $10,000 on a digital piece of art? Or why would you spend $10,000 on a digital handbag? And then you look at the fact that like, there are counterfeit handbags that are made out of the same molds, the same materials at the same factory. Every single thing is exactly the same as that handbag that you'd buy for $10,000, but because it's a knockoff, it's worth $50. And so like, I don't know, a lot of, I think that that $9,950 Delta you know, you can capture as well digitally as you can physically. And it's just about kind of people wanting to feel like they have something that makes them different and special. And so you can do that more quickly and easily in a metaverse. Plus it's just gonna be fascinating worlds to explore and all Absolutely. that kind of stuff. Another thing is like in, at least in Ready Player One, uh, there are basically end up being like two companies that matter, right? There's the Oasis, uh, I don't know if that's actually the name of the company, but that's the name of the, the, the game, quote unquote. Yep. Um, and they're, they're the sort of, you know, the actual platform that provides the technology. And then there's the, the other company whose name I don't remember, but they, they're sort of the, the pipes and the infrastructure, right? And basically those are the only two companies in the world that really matter. Yeah. Um, so, so I imagine there's also that angle too, is that there's some massive race to be the company who supplies the metaverse. Because ultimately it's not going to be a bunch of systems talking to each other through APIs, most likely it's probably going to be like a big winner take all kind of environment. I don't know if that's the big debate or not, but. That is, that is the, that is like the big debate. Is it going to be Facebook and is like uh, Oculus and Facebook reality labs going to be a, a really nice entree into it? Or, you know, will the Epic backed by Tencent kind of view of this open metaverse went out. And I mean, like, that's what got me interested actually in the first place is Epic's strategy, Matthew Ball was on Invest Like the Best and talked about Epic's strategy. And it just absolutely fascinated me about like how much you're willing to give up in the short term in terms of margin and revenue and all that. If you think that you're going to expand the TAM of this metaverse thing to like multi, multi, multi trillions of dollars and be in a leadership position, but also from that leadership position, want to open it up to other players. It's just, I've never seen someone think about strategy in that way before. And so that's what got me fascinated in the first place. Awesome. Cool. Okay. One other topic I wanted to talk about uh, on Not Boring is the business model side. So, uh, you know, a lot of writers are going the subscription route, right? They, you know, build a, a large following and they say, hey, you know, pay me a hundred bucks a year and we'll keep it up. Um, you are not doing that. Um, you have a sponsor for every post. Um, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about sort of your rates, but would love to know sort of before we even get into that, why? Like, why, why have you made that choice to go more the advertising route? Sure. So there's a couple different reasons. One is just that I don't have any more time to write any more posts. Like I'm writing all the time anyway. Um, and so 
if that's the case, then I either need to give up growth by putting the good stuff behind a paywall or by putting some of the stuff behind a paywall, um, or I need to figure out how to not sleep and write more. And so, you know, neither of those were compelling to me. And so I decided one that I just wanted to kind of keep everything free and open Two, the content's a little bit general. Uh, whereas like, you know, Lenny, it's very easy to make the case that your company should pay for that thing, because if you're going to be a good PM, then you should absolutely subscribe to Lenny's newsletter and, and be a part of the community and all of that harder to make that sell for not boring. It's like, I kind of need to stay in the loop and have like a more fun way to read about business is a harder sell. Some people would do it for sure, but it wouldn't be a, a massive signup rate or at a high price point. Um, and then three is I just kind of ran the math and even at a 10% conversion to paid, you know, I, was, I think the sponsor approach just made a little bit more sense if I'm able to do a couple of them a week and able to do the sponsored deep dives. It actually just financially makes more sense. So I'm giving up consistency for more, more upside. Gotcha. Uh, are, are you able or willing to share just so, so people have a sense for, you know, what is possible as a newsletter writer sponsored by or supported by ads? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's been really good. So my Monday slots right now cost $5,000 uh, and my Thursday slots cost $3,000. Um, and then, you know, my deep dives can be up to $20,000 if things go right on them right now. And it will just keep kind of going uh, as, as it grows. And that's the nice thing about it and how growth and and the sponsor model work well together. Because if I stay open, I can keep growing and then those rates go up and it works for everybody. I mean, I haven't had, you know, the price tag sounds high on the deep dives and I have not had anybody who's been at all unhappy yet. Like they've been like, wow, this is the best thing that's been written on our company. This is amazing in its own right. And then we got all these leads and all those other things. So I don't know, there's a lot of win-wins I think in that, in that model. Whereas with subscription, sometimes it's a little bit like, yeah, I like Packy. So like, if he's going to do this, then I guess I have to do it. But like, it kind of feels shittier. Whereas like the sponsor is psyched to get in front of, uh, in front of the audience and to pay that money and they have the budget. So I'd rather take the money from the companies that have it and not take it from the people who are just regular, regular people who like reading that boring. What is it about your relationship with your readers that you think allows you to command a price like that? Uh, I think it's the readers themselves as much as my relationship with them. So it's, it really is like, you know, half tech decision maker types and then half finance types. And so it's a really good audience from that perspective, all good personal incomes, the right age, demographics, education levels, like all the things that you'd want to see. And there are people who can, who can make money. I'd say, you know, for consumer at advertisers, like the only people who've been like, ah, this wasn't so great were people who sell consumer products. And so I've stopped doing that as much because I, I will sell literally fewer units of certain consumer products that cost $20 than of a SaaS product that costs thousands of dollars. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Um, so, so my last question for you uh, is, um, you know, for someone just starting out who looks at what you're doing and wants to try to emulate your success. I, I don't know if you would refer to yourself just as like a newsletter writer or as an independent internet native entrepreneur, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Um, but like, what advice would you have for somebody looking to sort of emulate uh, what you're doing? Oh yes. This is going to be the cheesiest advice, but I think it's actually really, really true. If you're going to do this weird life where you're just kind of exploring different things, make sure that you're interested in the thing that you're doing. Cause it will be a bit uncertain. It'll be shaky for a while. I didn't make any money on this for a year, right? Like, you know, there's a lot there that if I didn't love doing this, it would have been pretty miserable. And so I think if you're going to take advantage of this kind of new world that we're in, where you can make a living on the internet, make sure that you're exploring something that you're going to actually love because you're going to spend a lot of time 
researching it, talking to people, the corners of Twitter that you're in are going to be influenced by the types of things that you're doing. And so you're going to be surrounded by people and talking to people about the things that you write. Like that's actually interesting when I've written about stuff that I've been less interested in before when I was exploring, a lot of people would want to have conversations about those things. And I was like, no, 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 I was just kind of writing this academically and I'm not that interested in it, but you attract the types of people who are interested in the things that, that you're writing. And so you want to, this is a really great way to surround yourself by the type with the types of people that you want to be surrounded by. And so make sure that you're doing something that you're actually interested in and will be interested in for a while. Awesome. Great advice. Packy, thanks so much for joining. Um, and good luck to you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the flywheel. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and anything you'd like to hear more of in the future. You can find me on Twitter at, at JakeSing underscore, which is J-A-K-E-S-I-N-G underscore. 